Hey, what is up, everybody, and welcome back to The Inforium, a show about productivity, personal finance, business, and, well, becoming an adult, I would say. Not I've, about college. I've been one of those a couple of times. A couple of times? Yeah. I always hated it. Well, everyone does. Th- this is true. Yeah, becoming an adult sucks. But sometimes it's awesome, you know? Nah. Sometimes you get to, like, vote, never. maybe. It's never awesome. <laughs> All right, before we get into it... Uh, <sighs> It has come to my attention that somebody in the comments on the last episode was complaining that we don't have new theme music. So, Martin, I think we need new theme music. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's probably fine. I'm gonna I'm that's gonna come up with something. Criticism. But here you go. This is just for you. Uh, this is not off the top of my head because I was practicing it before. But this is your new theme music. There. Good enough. Wow, I feel Burn I feel it. revved and ready to podcast. Do you? I'm gonna be. It was it really a part of my soul that I didn't know existed because the podcast part <laughs> isn't really a, a, that important of a part normally. Of your soul? Yeah, it's the podcast section. It, it's a new addition. Our podcast is an activated. important part of your soul. Yeah. How dare you? Um, what can I say? <laughs> what can you say? Uh, okay, so full disclosure to everybody, but mostly apology to Martin. This is actually the third episode of the Emporium. It is, isn't it? <laughs> we, wow. Yeah, we recorded the second episode wow, this morning, man. and um, I'm going to take full responsibility. I didn't check the tech setup as well as I should have. I've used this little recorder guy, which the audience uh, listening can't see, but I've used this little recorder guy here for a lot of my videos, and it has great battery life, and it said it was charged, and it lied to me. You trusted. So I did. I trusted it. So now it's got fully charged batteries and power backup. I love I had a power backup. Tape. That's I had what I love. Gaff tape the power backup to the oh, back man. of this reel-to-reel recorder, but we're good to go. Yeah, this isn't even the same topic you were going to hear about. No, we can't do the same it's topic. A brand, it's a brand new one. We're going to sit on that we've, topic. We've tried re-recording one right after it. It's It feels terrible. Now We the, did that once. The last time we had to re-record was also my fault, wasn't it? Every time we have to re-record, it's your fault. One time you let Tony Hawk licensed music be in the episode. That was what it was, wasn't it? it or was, was there another I, one? Explicitly, well, that might have been another one. Because was I remember specifically one? saying, we can't, we can't do this. There's, that's licensed music. And you were like, nah. And then later you were like, after we recorded, you were like, you got a point, actually. <laughs> I remember in the moment being like, it was very I'll find a way to make it work. I'll do some kind of... EQ trick or something. I'll do the to reverse Tony Hawk, but no, trick it didn't that you work. Can do an audition. That's, yeah, there that's was just setting. like deftones in the background of that episode. So this yeah. is part of the reason why we no longer do the um, playing video games while answering questions no. episodes. No. The other reason is it's really hard to answer complex questions. Uh, yeah, about I would say that we can only answer certain kind of questions like that yeah. in a way that'll come out cool and organic, but usually. Usually it's weird because mm-hmm. I'm I'm focused, so it's like half an answer, and then you gotta wait, and then the rest of the answers come in in a second. Yeah. So uh, this week we are going to, I want to say return to our home buying series, but I think a more accurate term would be to reboot the home buying well, series, particularly because it's a new titled podcast. New titled podcast, and I also. Uh, I was intending to do an episode on the financial side of buying a home, just like 
mortgages, down payment. And I think that's what we're going to focus on a lot here. But I asked for people's questions over on Instagram and Twitter, and I got a lot of more basic questions. Like, should you buy or keep renting? Like, when does it make sense to buy? A lot of like the more preliminary questions. Okay. So we're going to do an episode about buying a house because my fiance and I are in the process of doing that right now, along with basically half the people I know, it seems. That's true. Lots of people be buying houses mm-hmm. these days. My friend Matt was like, oh, you buying a house? I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh yeah, I did too. Andrew just bought one. My brother just bought one. My friend Nathaniel just bought one. Like three or four people in Iowa recently bought them. Three or four people in Iowa recently bought one. Everybody's buying houses. Our friends from Des Moines moved here with I'm the not intention to buy one. I'm, I'm a, a loner, a bit of a rebel. Well, let's put it this way. So your job on this episode is to ask me whatever questions you would like to know for when you do intend to start buying a house. Do I ever intend to start buying a house? That's the number Are one question. Are you telling me you don't want to have like a quaint little house on Bainbridge Island someday? Oh, I'm, own... no, I'm saying that... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess that sounds cool. <laughs> Where you can, but I don't I, know, grow your own I kombucha. I need to like do a lot of other stuff first. <laughs> like uh, grow kombucha. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you just grow it in puddles yeah. in the ground and you <laughs> scoop it out with a ladle. Now make sure this ladle doesn't have any bpa or your kombucha is spoiled that's true no bpa in the ladles otherwise <laughs> you're gonna get twitter canceled and also would i drink out of a kombucha puddle that's well, that seems is... like the kind of cool fantasy thing that would happen in the fairyland series it and is i would be down fermented slightly yeah, yeah it's like it... so maybe that's gonna help with any like standing like liquid problems it just it just teams up with the other bacteria in the ground to make a different kind of kombucha yeah deadly kombucha yeah maybe we don't want that it's it's gonna be great but yeah we're gonna go through the process of buying a house um what we intend to do on future episodes of the Inforium is to have a few reader questions at the end of every episode that are at random yeah because yeah, i if, thought if that if you're would be not a that into way. the topic you know you, there's still something for you if you have the habit of listening to us regardless mm-hmm. there might be something for you at the end a little grab bag this episode, I got a bit of an outline, and a lot of that is questions I got from readers. I don't know why I say readers yeah, always. Yeah, I, I know, right? Like I've, listeners, re- I've recently caught viewers. myself typing reader questions when typing it out. They're like, I mean, if you're reading the podcast, we don't transcribe it, so I don't know how. We got cult member questions. Maybe we should, but that's another thing. Cult member questions. Cult All member right. questions. If you submit a question to us on social media, you are officially a cult member. Welcome. Your initiation ceremonies next Wednesday. You need to purchase a hooded robe by then. Cool. We got a discount link for you. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I got a I got a bunch of cult member questions. So we're gonna go through those instead of doing random reader questions today. Uh, but first, I want to start going through the process because this is what I've been doing recently. And then you have questions for me. I do. So I don't know what your questions cover. I've got the hard hitting questions that need to be asked. Do you have any questions that are like basic, like beginner? questions probably all of them okay i don't know what counts as beginner like how expert level can you be at buying a house um well one thing that i'm currently doing is building a highly advanced calculator in excel that will help you figure out if you should pay private mortgage insurance or pay your full 20 percent down using that's macroeconomic trends that's like a step further than most of my questions because my answer to those questions to myself is I don't know. I'll figure it out later. 
That is everyone's answer to that question, as it turns out. Also, because I'm not opposed to PMI, because, I mean, if I really want the house, I'm willing to pay costs that are obnoxious for it. We're going to talk about that but, later in the episode, because so, a, a yeah. lot of people want to know Mine are all that. before that point. Uh, all right. Start me out with the question. All right. And then we'll we'll slowly work into the process. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to break down the entire process from I've decided I'm interested in buying a house to I have gotten an offer accepted. Oh, look at that. I'm is that, prepared. Is that paper? This is the new iPad. <laughs> it folds. It's, it's Samsung yeah, could figure folding, that out. It's the folding one. It's, Actually, uh, apparently, apparently, Samsung could figure it out. Tony was telling me they have like a new one coming out that doesn't crease in the middle, and break the screen. But hey, they figured that. Well, with I got paper I got this ago. one, and it was zero dollars. Mm. So it's actually a pretty good let's price. Let's see. Let's see. What's the most basic question <laughs> on here? Um. How long should you know you want to live somewhere before it makes sense to buy a house? Ooh, because if is... I only want to live somewhere for a year, it seems pretty ridiculous to buy a house and then hope I can sell it in year two. Obviously, there must yes. be a line at which it makes sense. This is a great question. Uh, and there's several different answers to this question. But my main answer here is decide you want to be in a place for like a while. What's a while? Um, We've been here. This five is the years. fourth year in Denver. Five years. Let's just say that. Okay, so like, five, five more I'm years. I'm sure people could come up with, with different like crossover points. Uh, Trulia has a calculator that I found while I was researching this where you can put in your rent, you can put in a house, and uh, it'll tell you at what point does renting become more expensive Ooh. than buying the house. Now, that sounds like, like a pro way to do this once you get into it. Yes. That makes I sense. want to know their methodology. I want to I see the equations. Because they say they factor in the down payment and things like that. Um, I have a calculator that I would highly recommend people check out if they're interested in this episode that will show you like how much a house will probably cost you per month with everything and then compare that against your rent. But uh, you got to put it on a huge down payment. There's yeah. no guarantee you're going to be able to sell it at a profit or even at break even. So yeah, my rule of thumb is if you want to be in a place for five years and you're like, I'm willing to I'm willing to go to a neighborhood where I can afford to buy. Then it makes sense to start looking at buying if your financial situation is going to work with that. Okay, um, that makes sense. So like, it's 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 tough to figure out a general answer here on the finance question because different markets and different like neighborhoods are going to have a different uh, balance between is it cheaper to rent or cheaper to buy. Yeah, and obviously most of the neighborhoody questions are all personal preference. Mm -hmm. How would you know it makes sense financially? What what percentage of income, if you did that calculator and it was like this is how much it is a month total, what percentage of income would you want for that? Because I know that a lot of places in Denver here, they'll they'll test that you can make like triple the rent before you're yep. approved. Is that pretty reasonable? Yeah, house, that is. You think? That is. So the government, I think, it's like the FHA, typically wants to see. Uh, your housing expenses would be 30% of your gross income. Okay. So, so not even take home, it'd be gross uh, or less. There's a guy, what's his name? I put it in my notes here. David Bach, he wrote this book called The Automatic Millionaire. And he said 29% of your gross income um, could be your housing expenses. Or if you're debt free, up to 41%. Hmm. And this, I think this is based on like, some surveys they had done with a lot of people kind of like judging their financial comfortable comfortability level 
Like, do you feel stressed about your finances and your house payment, your debt payments, or do you feel that you have them under control or they're causing you like mental anguish all the time? Uh, It's hard to say like these are hard and fast rules because in many locations, you know, your, your rent would also go into that equation. Yeah. Obviously your rent should, if, if your housing payments with everything included, mortgage, property taxes, homeowners insurance, HOA, all that stuff, yeah. if all that, you know, is going to be under 41% plus your debt payments, well then that would mean your rent should also be under 41%. That, yeah, that would make sense. Because your rent is covering all those that costs would, for your landlord. That would make sense. In some places, if you get a job in San Francisco or something, you may not be able to do that. If I get a job in San Francisco, I can spend 100k on a box and hopefully that exactly. would be fun. Houses are four billion dollars there. Yeah, four billion. So if you have the four GDP billion. of like a small European country, then you can afford to buy a house in San Francisco. But yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that that's kind of like I think a good rule of thumb. So in my Excel spreadsheet calculator, I should say Google Sheets. That's what it's what it is. Um, I have a little column where after you put in your housing. Uh, cost and then your income it will be red if it's over i believe it's that 40 percent amount oh cool what i need to do is i need to build in the debt payment thing because currently i have it set up where you just put your student loans in with expenses and it doesn't currently calculate those into the housing thing so i think by the time this episode goes live i will have made that tweak Hmm. because i want to get like a whole debt dashboard built where you can figure out like which student loans should i pay off first what should i do that that is actually one of the questions on this paper oh yeah is how much how much would you want to pay off your other debts first Mm. or is that that important that's a great question so we can use that 41 percent um debt and housing to income ratio as a guideline for your monthly payment so if your debt payments and your housing payments were no less than or no more than 41% of your gross take-home pay, then on a month-to-month basis, we can say that you're safe to get a house or you're safe to go up to a rental that would be with, within those limits. The thing that worries me is, you know, what if you have $100,000 in private student loans Ouch. that you could not defer uh, or you could not go to an income-based repayment plan what if you had those and then you get a mortgage and then what happens if you lose your job? Yeah, that's one of the things that's that, something that I worries worry me is like, sure, if I could afford this, but at certain points, even if it's comfortable, imagine if you got out of college, you got a super good programming job. Mm-hmm. You make a hundred and some K. I've known some people to do it immediately. Imagine that they do all this. They fully extend to the 41%. Bam, they lose their job somehow and can't find a new one in the area. It's like, well, you used such a difficult to replace income. Yeah. So here's my think my thinking on this. Uh, COVID nineteen has changed the picture right now because it's yeah. introduced a lot of uncertainty that we've never had to deal with before. Because of that, I'm not really sure what I would recommend in these times. But if we're talking about normal times, I'm not gonna live my life operating on the fear that I couldn't make enough money to live like say a year from now. I'm not gonna, I'm probably not gonna operate on the fear that I couldn't make enough money to live six months from now. But maybe I would operate on the fear that I could lose my income for three months. So what I would say is, can you save up three to six months of savings that could cover 
your minimum student loan payments, and your mortgage. That's fair enough. And that's money you would not touch for your down payment, closing costs, buying a big old L couch for your living room once you have your house, like as money you, you that is your emergency fund essentially. Yeah. Can you save that much money? If so, let's consider the savings question basically solved in normal times. Maybe you ought to be a little more conservative during these times. Maybe right now you want, you want to tack on several extra months or whatever you feel. Yeah. Just consider your, your life own, situation. Your own job market will be different. Mm-hmm. Might be easier or more difficult to replace in your area. Yeah. And like, like what kind of job do you have? Do you have a remote job doing programming? Maybe that's not as under threat from the pandemic as something else. So yeah. there, there's a lot of risk uh, tolerance calculations that go into this. But the main thing to consider is if you have a rental and you lose your job and you have to give the rental, you give up the rental. You know, maybe you got to go live with roommates. Maybe you got to go move back with your parents. You've lost the rental. That's all you've lost. If you buy a house, you put in a huge down payment, you take a mortgage, and then you cannot pay your mortgage for a certain amount of months, your house will go into foreclosure. The bank will repossess it, sell it off. And as far as I know, you have lost your down payment and your house. Wow. And your credit has been affected more, uh, more severely than losing out on your rental. So I think it is very important to be relatively sure you can handle those payments, even if there was a temporary disturbance in the force slash your income. Yeah. Glad to know mortgage still lives up to its etymology. What, what does that mean? It means like what's the etymology behind mortgage? It comes from, now I can't say necessarily that it comes from French, but probably, otherwise it shares a root that French also shares. But it uh, means like like a dead or death agreement, meaning <laughs> that when you fail to pay, the agreement is dead. This house is no longer yours. Oh, yeah. And you, you lose. Mm-hmm. You win nothing. Now, Good day, sir. everyone should do their own research when it comes to what it would mean if you got foreclosed on. Ask your mortgage lender these things. But um, it's not like you miss one payment and they're like, Boom. I imagine we're more forgiving than like several hundred years ago. Yeah. The the bank, like foreclosure is basically the the last resort option where they're going to, they're going to repossess the house. They're going to sell it at auction and they're going to try to make back what they've loaned you through that auction sale. Yeah. Sometimes they don't even get what the outstanding loan balance is, is at auction for whatever reason. And then there could be further legal proceedings to make you pay that difference. So I'm sure you get a, a couple of warnings before it gets to this but stage. Yes. So the bank doesn't want to have to do that. It doesn't sound they're going to they're going to want to try to work with you to get the money from the person they signed the agreement with. So there are things that mortgage lenders will do sometimes like, you know, allowing a payment to be deferred or allowing a smaller payments for a while. Like they're going to try to work with you, but it's not like they're just going to be like, oh, yeah, just don't pay it for a year. It's fine. That's not going to happen. Yeah, probably. So my my thing here is have three to six months of basic expenses in the bank if you can. That's you fair know? enough, not living in the the constant fear that what happens in four years mm-hmm. if if I trip and fall, it's like that's fair. You don't you don't want to mitigate so much risk that you simply refuse to live if you don't yeah. have thirty years of safe life saved up. Exactly. Yeah. I mean it's just like insurance companies, right? Like insurance underwriting, they they set their rates based on like statistics, but they're not like, well, statistically, you are going to die someday, so we're not going to give you insurance. 
You know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> there's there's acceptable risk. Statistically speaking, you seem to be mortal. So, <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're not going to give you a policy. Like only immortals get policies. Yeah. <laughs> um, OK, so did you have any other questions that seem like beginnery or. Was um, that... What if you can't start any of this? What if what if you don't have great credit? Is there any single thing you can do that isn't simply wait several years until your credit's better? You can get a mortgage with low credit. Really? Yes. Um, I forget the exact okay. number, but I think if you're below, I want to say 550. I wouldn't have expected that. If you're below 550, you can get an FHA loan, but you have to put 10% down. Mm. It may not be 550. I didn't write the exact numbers down here because I was doing like basic research. So we can uh, link to it in the show notes where the there was like some article I was reading. But yes, it's like mid 500s. If you're beneath that, you can still get it. Uh, I don't know if it's like, I don't know if you're going to get it if you're like totally in the dumps, but uh, mm. you will have to put 10% down and then your interest rate may be higher because your credit makes, or your credit score influences your interest rate. Hmm. Um, so let's, let's get into the process here. Yeah. Um, so I guess like the first thing is deciding whether or not it's time for you to buy a house. We kind of covered that. My rule of thumb is I like the area. I'm willing to spend five years here. You know, maybe plans change, but like you're thinking this is where you want to be for the next five years. At least at the moment that Mm -hmm. feels like something where you're not clearly against it. Yeah. Now there are going to be people who are like, dude, you could just house hack. You could buy a house. You could rent out two rooms to two people. You could like live mortgage free, basically have them cover it. And then you could just move out whenever you want. You know, some people do that. If, if we're ever going to cover that stuff, we'll cover it in a future episode. That sounds complicated. Right now we're going to cover the basic scenario. You and or your life partner want to purchase a home for yourselves. And it could be a townhome, could be a condo, could be a single family home, which is... Oh, yeah, condos. Condos are things. I totally forgot about that. That's just that's just like an apartment you buy. Exactly, Basically, yes. There's condos and co-ops. They're, they're a little bit better. So a condo, you're literally, like, you're literally buying uh, a unit in a building. Yeah. And then like co-ops, I think you're like buying into a company that owns the whole building. So you don't like straight up own your unit. You own stake in the company. That's interesting. I've not even heard They have of that their one. pluses and minuses. Uh, I'm not super knowledgeable about either of them because I am your typical future suburban dad that wants a three-car garage. Yeah. So I haven't looked into them much, but they do exist and they are options. So yeah, decide it's time. The first thing you want to do is, number one, figure out like what kind of life do you want to live? Do you want to have a condo in a hip part of the city where you can go to a hipster restaurant or hookah bar or I don't know, whatever people are doing these days, mustache waxing bar right down the road. You could, or do you want your typical, you could get a mustache wax cocktail while drinking a nice cocktail. That's delightful right there. That's That's, not too far. (laughs) That's not too far off. Actually the hairstylist I go to like, is like, do you want a beer? Oh, it's so. pretty it's pretty close. <laughs> it's pretty close. And it's like it is a nice like craft local beer. All right. So I don't know. Maybe I could ask her, like, can I do a mustache wax and have a cocktail? Yeah. That's and if not, is that a value add that would be worth adding to your business? I don't even know. How would that even work? You'd dr- be trying to drink <laughs> with <laughs> it'd be really like I don't really think that's awkward. gonna work. <laughs> yeah. Maybe with a straw. It's a beer hat, like one of those hat things. Oh, okay. You put the cocktail there, you got a straw. Yeah. That goes under, so they have room to work on the mustache. Naturally. 
and you're good to go. This is this is obvious. This is business yeah. 101. <laughs> this, this should be in business schools. We should be charging for this. Okay. Um, now you need to figure out your budget. So budget means a couple of different things. One, your down payment amount. And two, your, I'm going to call it monthly hard cost. There are, there are, for the monthly amount, there are two numbers that I'm considering when I'm looking at buying a house, which I am right now. So there's one where I call it, it's monthly hard cost. And that is the amount of money you have to pay every month to live in that house. So that is not just your mortgage amount. That's mortgage. Uh, that is going to be property taxes, homeowners insurance, HOA fees, if there are any, utilities, and then, uh, so that's your hard cost. And then I have another one I call full cost, which is the hard cost plus your uh, recommended savings. So when you own a house, the buck stops with you. If a toilet flapper valve mm. breaks, you got to go to Home Depot and buy a $10 flapper valve and change it. If your roof gets blown off in a storm, well, maybe your homeowner's insurance is going to pay for part of that, but anything else you got to pay for. If you need new windows, you got to pay for those. So... Um, when I used to run List of Money Matters, my friend Andrew built like this whole software tool called Investable, which is for real estate investors. And it kind of like helps you figure out, given a certain purchase price on a certain property, do you think it'll cash flow? Which means like, will it be profitable at a certain rent? Hmm. And it'll use like economic data to figure out what, what what's rent likely to be on that property. And then what are your... Um, utilities costs, all of these kinds of things. And there's what he called major minor capex. And these are basically minor maintenance and major repairs. There's like certain, certain amounts you should save. Uh, and I think he had had the major repairs pegged to like 1% of the property value every year. So I'm pretty sure that my budget tool which uh, anybody who wants to follow along is at it's at thomasjfrank.com slash budget tool. Just one word, no dashes or anything. Uh, I think I'm using that 1% of the purchase price or appraisal value as major repairs and then minor repairs. I think I have it at like 50 bucks a month. You know, mm. it could be more, it could be less. You never know, but I call that recommended savings. Um, I would probably keep that in a low-risk investment that's liquid. Like... I don't know, like a Vanguard bond fund or a money market or something, you know. Or once you get to a certain amount of money invested, maybe just keep it in a index fund or something. So it's usually making more money. And, you know, if there is a downturn in the markets, like it's not going to wipe you out. But you do want to have money around for repairs. Okay. Because otherwise you're going to have broken windows or credit card debt. Either one you want. Uh, so you want to think about that. And you're going to get what I call like that full cost. And then what I like to do is compare that to what my current rent is. In my case, the houses I was looking at, that full cost was always like well below what I'm currently renting at. So for me, it's like a no brainer to buy a house as long as I had the money saved up for the down payment because I'm gonna be paying less per month, which even means that I can afford to increase my monthly savings goals to kind of put back the money that I took out of my investments for the down payment. It's just cheaper every month. Hmm. So that's like the main thing to be considering. And uh, I guess let's talk about down payment. So I think you had asked me like how much money you got to put down. Uh, I don't remember. Though it's a good question because 
I've heard varying figures from like so the maybe Iowa had some sort of first time home buyers thing. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's a state by state or a national thing here what that is, but some people I've heard can get like a sub 10% down payment, but otherwise I've heard 20 or even 30 in some cases. Mm. I've never heard 30 that be was recommended in extenuating circumstances of okay. like needing to prove. Yeah, maybe that could be like if you had terrible credit or something yeah. um i do know like a, usually a friend i hear I had, 20 yeah a friend i had in college her parents actually put down they put down 60 percent on their place i guess they just really didn't want to have a mortgage that was very much um i have family who just dropped the whole thing one time just like cash it wasn't an expensive house but yeah just the whole thing some people do that i mean maybe, my landlord maybe they bought this like place the, in cash like the dramatic gesture you know, it feels great. You do probably. get to drop like ten pounds of money, and you make sure on that you have it in bills in a suitcase. Yes, otherwise, will it's not, not draw cool. any suspicion. But what what would people that don't want to feel cool with bills in a suitcase do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, twenty uh, percent is the down payment amount you will need to put down if you don't want to pay what's called private mortgage insurance. So essentially, banks looking at lenders, they're going to look at a lot of factors to see how trustworthy are you. What's your credit score? Do you look trustworthy? Do you have like a weird, like, do you keep winking oddly in the meeting? <laughs> you're gonna Why make are you that, winking? You're going to make that billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say to us for a second, Tim and Eric will make $1 billion without winking. <laughs> oh, you'll make a billion. <laughs> uh, and another thing is how much money you're putting down. If you're putting down 3% of the purchase price, well, number one, the bank has to extend more money. So they're putting more on the line. But number two, you don't have as much skin in the game. Somebody who puts 3% down, if the house gets hit by a meteor or they just decide, you know what, I want to stop paying and whatever, I'll let it go in foreclosure. Like they're not going to feel the hurt as much because they put barely any money down. Mm, Whereas somebody who put 20% down, it's like, all right, you got skin in the game. We're only, we're only giving you 80% of the value. So, you know, statistically people who put more down are more trustworthy or at least are more likely to pay their mortgage and, you know, put in that effort. Um, So insurance is a whole scheme to mitigate risk and help deal with it. Private mortgage insurance is pretty much money you pay every month to the bank because you don't have uh, your 20% equity in the house. So a lot of people think that like PMI is the worst thing in the world. It is to be avoided at all costs save up as much money as you can so you can avoid PMI by putting down the full 20%. But really, it's all just math. And, you know, the big, the biggest factor, other than the price of the house that's going to influence your payment every month, is the interest rate on the mortgage. So, actually, I want to see, can, do I have Google Sheets on this iPad actually logged in? I want to see if I can bring it up. Because I have a calculator that I can actually use here. And I even have uh, numbers built in. So here, here's my house comparison. Because we're in Denver, I have a $330,000 house put into my first house comparison thing. And then I have like $500,000 houses in there as well. Uh, right now, I saw a friend on Twitter who said he put, he put 3% down and got 2.75% interest, which is crazy. So... Two point, uh, oopsie. <laughs> you know what I accidentally did is 
Wait, what did I just do? I did something weird. There we go. I'm going to put this at 2.75 because I have it at 3 right now. I put the wrong figure in. 2.75 on a $330,000 house, and I have the down payment at 3.5. So that's 11550 bucks, which is crazy. Um, boy, that... What the heck just happened here? It thinks I'm putting in 275,000% interest. Okay, here we go. That's pretty bad. <laughs> here we go. Okay, so if it's a 2.75% interest loan, then your payment per period on this $330,000 house with the loan amount being 318000 because you're only putting 3.5 down is 1300 per month. That's just the mortgage. So that's 2.75%. Uh, sometimes mortgage rates are at four and a half percent. So let's do four and a half here. If my iPad will actually let me type the four, be nice. So we had 1300 going up to four and a half percent. That brings us up to $1,613. So an increase in 313 bucks per month, just because you got a different interest rate and your interest rate is not determined just on you. Your credit score does go into it, but it's also like, what has the government set as interest rates? Mm. What are the big macroeconomic trends going on right now? So right now, interest rates are as low as they've ever been. And that is causing people to go crazy trying to buy houses, especially since most people were locked up in their houses for a few months, and now like cities are reopening a little bit. So all these buyers are like, I want to buy a house, and holy crap, the interest rates are so low, I got to go buy right now. Now, on the flip side, sellers are afraid to sell their houses because they're not sure what's coming in the future and because a lot of them are afraid to let a bunch of people under their house during a pandemic. So the amount of houses yeah. for sale is low. The number of buyers is super high and supply and demand means house prices are just nuts right now. But it still may be worth it because the interest rates are so low. I mean, if you're somebody, and uh, this is not me, but if you're somebody who is buying like say an $800,000 house. I ran this comparison. If it was an $800,000 house at 5% mortgage, that would be about the same as an $1.1 million house at 3% mortgage in terms of monthly payment. Huh. So the mortgage interest rate is a huge factor that, that, here. That actually matters. It matters difference. so much. That's cool. So again, thomasjfrank.com slash budget tool if you want to. There's like a housing... Uh, calculator comparison tool as one of the sheet tabs. You can go in there, set an annual percentage rate, set a down payment percentage or dollar amount, and compare up to three houses and see what your payment would be. That's a little bit on the mortgage rates. Anyway, for down payment, you can do anywhere between 3 and 20%. There are also different types of loan programs. Conventional, which is like your regular, whatever. Uh, there's FHA, which is like first-time homebuyers, like national uh, I think like it's 3.5 is the minimum for FHA, but the credit requirements can be lower. Then there's like VA for veterans. There's like a rural one that I don't know much about. And then like you said, there are state ones. I don't know much about the state ones because I don't live in all 50 states. So if you want to know about the state ones, Google your yeah. state. Or if you don't live in the United States, Google you know your province or whatever governmental space you live in and see like what are the programs available for first-time home buyers because there often are on a more local level and i don't know what they're going to provide you 
you're probably still going to want a down payment percentage. Uh, but generally, you know, between three and 20. Very important thing to notice or to note here, though, if you are in the United States and you get an FHA loan and you put less than 10% down, you're going to be paying PMI for the life of the loan. Not just until you've hit 20% or exactly. so. Exactly. Mm. Um, now, what I learned in talking to my mortgage lender is you put down, let's say you put down 18% for whatever reason, thinking, you know what, I'll just pay, I'll pay a couple of extra mortgage payments, like a couple of extra principal payments, and I'll get rid of the PMI in two months. You can't actually do that. From what I've been told, uh, if you're getting PMI, you got to pay it for at least 24 months. So you're going to have two years paying that regardless. And then I, th and what else, the other things he said was, uh, if like, once you get to the 80% loan to value ratio, which is you have 20% equity, you can call and ask to have the PMI removed. And then I think it's like, they're legally required to remove it. Uh, once it gets to a 78% loan to value ratio. Hmm. So if you, you could save some money by calling right when you hit that 80% being like, Hey, um, I got enough equity. Can I stop paying that? And hopefully that would work out. So uh, here's how I view down payment. If you can get, if you can get the same interest rate at 3% and 20%, and we're not talking about FHA where the, the PMI is going to be there forever. I think about it in terms of what could I be doing with my savings? So say I have enough saved up for 20% um, down. Should I pay 20% down or should I pay 3% down? Well, if I pay 3% down, I'm going to be paying PMI. If I pay 20% down, though, it means I'm taking a huge chunk out of my savings that could be earning me money. Yeah, you could be in the investing market. that in, in the market, in a business idea, as all sorts of other stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Business idea. I could be using it for other real estate Obviously, deals. Obviously, some of it could be a safety net. I suppose preferably you'd want to not have to remove your safety net. I would never to remove do your my down payment, net. right? Yes. You wouldn't be like, I just got a safety net. Let's blow it on a house. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> don't become house poor. Yeah. You, like liquid savings is the still, name of the game. Still have a good savings after that. You must that. have a war chest always because life is kind of war in certain ways. Like there's nails on the on the street that are gonna pop your car tire at some point. You gotta be able to buy new car tires. That did, that did happen to me last year. So fair yeah. enough, it's very real. Yeah, it's, things the nails happen. are coming. So and and you know some people are like, well, yeah, you can get a HELOC and you can take money out of your equity in your house. But just have have liquid cash. I think. Don't be house poor. Don't be dumb. Yeah, because you weren't forced <laughs> to take this loan. You're you're choosing mm -hmm. to put yourself at that risk. So, so the way I think so maybe about it, don't. here's how I think about it. If I have the money to do the 20% down, uh, let's say to get from 5% to 20%, I'd have to take out $50,000. That's $50,000 that could have stayed in my investments making money. Yeah. And the only way I can justify the potential losses on that amount of money throughout the life of however long it's going to stay in there. I'm 29 now. If I kept it in there until I'm 70, that's 41 years. The only way I can, I can like mitigate against the losses there is to increase how much I'm investing per month in response to taking it out. 
Because if you think about it, if I'm, say I'm investing a grand a month into my investments and I take money out to deal with my down payment, but I don't change, I'm still going to be putting in a grand per month, every month. That's money I would have invested anyway. So if I don't increase what I'm investing in response to taking money out, I'm just, that's $50,000 I've taken out and the gains on that $50,000 over 41, invest, 41 years of investing are gone. Yeah, that's, that's a, pretty a big, lot that's of a money. a pretty big deal. Yeah. So in that case, if the PMI is not going to decrease the amount I can save every month or make me uncomfortable in some way, it might be worth paying the PMI. Yeah, Would I so pay 80 bucks there. a month yeah. for, I don't even know what the gains on 50K over 41 years are at 7%, but you can I'd, do the I'd math. I'd argue a few. It's a lot. A few gains. If I can increase my monthly savings in response to taking out money, then instead of calculating the gains across the entire life of me as an investor, all I need to do is figure out, okay, what would I lose in gains from now until my increased savings amount gets me back to where I was. So I took out 50K, I was putting in a thousand per month. Let's say I am saving a thousand dollars a month because I bought a house and my full monthly cost is a, is a full thousand dollars less than I was spending on my rental. Cool, I can, I can invest a thousand dollars more per month. It's gonna take me 50 months to put that money back essentially. So I can just calculate the average gains on 50 months and you can't just be like $50,000 gains over 50 months because you're kind of like stepstoning it back in at a thousand bucks a month. Yeah. There's math you could do on this. I'm working on building a calculator for it. Um, but at that point, you could be like, cool, those gains I can compare against the cost of the PMI and figure out are the potential gain losses higher than the cost of the PMI? If they are, pay the PMI. If they're not, don't pay the PMI. So you gotta like math to do this. Yeah, you, math gotta, to, you yeah. gotta find There's a math. friend who really likes math. I like that math. you trust not to mess with the numbers, I suppose. <laughs> but you're gonna have to like math. Oh, I guarantee you, I won't mess with the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I swear I won't use like a slightly modified version of the spreadsheet not at if all. you come to me and pay me for advice. No, I would do, I would never do that. But no, it's like people ask this question all the time. And my my uh my real estate agent was telling me like, yeah, people ask me all the time, should I pay PMI or not? And it's so hard to answer. Well, in this scenario, it's actually, you know, that you can build a fairly simple calculator to answer the question. The harder question, which I think is more common for a lot of people is, I don't currently have the money to pay 20% down. Yeah. Should yeah, I pay like, PMI now? Choice. Or should I, sorry, should I keep saving and, and wait until I have 20% down? So in that case, we can ask a few questions. Will paying PMI lower the amount you can save every month or not? If it's not gonna lower, say you're, say you're gonna pay PMI but your full hard cost is still less per month than your current rental, then we don't, have to, we don't have to think about that. What we can think about then is what is your credit score going to be several years from now versus what it is now? And then where do we think the economy is gonna be and hence where do we think the mortgage rates are gonna be? That's really hard to predict. There are probably economists who would offer smarter takes on this than I can offer, but my view is right now, mortgage rates are insane in terms of how low they are. I don't think we're gonna see them lower. So you might take that into consideration, you know? 
what would um, a half of a percent higher mortgage rate do to your monthly payment? And would that be higher in total than paying what they're offering you now in terms of rate plus PMI? Uh, yeah, so that, that's just something to think about in terms of that question. So many numbers. Very, very difficult to know but what mortgage rates there, are going to be like. But there have to be a lot of numbers. This is for like a several hundred thousand dollar investment in most places. Yeah, th- this is something that I it's feel a like huge thing. there should have been a class on it. Then again, like high school students wouldn't care. They're like, I'm not going to buy a house. So yeah, there should be a class on it for adults. House buying 101. Come back. You come back to the high school. Your old high school math teacher, he's, he's going to teach you. He's just going to yell at you the I same as he did. I actually want my gym teacher to do it. <laughs> okay. Your gym I'll get more it. motivated. Um, one person asked me uh, in terms of this whole topic here, like, well, you know, how do you know if house prices are going to be lower than they are now? I think it's a valid concern because right now house prices are going way up in response to both the low rates and the huge demand. Um you can look at median house prices over time for your entire country. You can also look at it for your city and like for zip codes. It's just like public data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is median. You, I mean, actually, you know, the, the, the cool thing is basically everything in real estate is public. Hmm. The county assessor's office will show you the tax history and the purchase price history for any property you want. Huh. So... Yeah, if you're, if you're researching properties, you can be like, well, what did this sell for? If you're on Zillow, you can zoom in enough on a neighborhood and you can see what the, the property values for all the houses in a neighborhood are. That's how they get all those numbers. Okay. It's all from county assessor's data. It's all public. Mm-hmm. Anybody can look at it. It's great. Um, that's, you know, a lot of these data services aggregate stuff from that. And then Andrew built Investable by tapping into an API that sells that data. That's cool. So, yeah, it's cool. You can look at whatever you want. And, you know, because it's all public, we can look at median home price increases or decreases over time for a given area. I was really surprised because I looked at Denver's and there is definitely a dip in 2008. But when you look at like the whole nation, it's like going way up uh, certain like the year 2000 or so. And the 2008 just boom, crashes. Naturally. For Denver, specifically single family houses, like not townhomes, it wasn't that crazy. Like there was a dip, but it wasn't it wasn't a crash. For townhomes and condos, there was a bit more of a crash. I don't really know why. So, you know, we've got a lot of uncertainty in the future due to the pandemic. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, the one thing I have been hearing though is the price of building materials is not going down. So, building new homes is expensive, which in turn is making the current stock of old homes also expensive. If people can't afford to buy new construction houses, then there's a lot of demand for older stuff. And, you know, a lot of people are moving to cities. So if you're looking to buy a house in Davenport, Iowa, maybe the prices are going to go down after all this craziness ends. I don't even know where that is, and I'm from Iowa. It's like, uh, you know where Dubuque is? So I, I guess you've, no, I guess you've proven your point. <laughs> <laughs> Davenport's not that tiny. It's like right on the uh, the eastern edge of the state. I want to say it's north of Dubuque. I think. I don't know. Anyway, you know, not not uh, epicenter of movement activity. Denver. I would be surprised to see property values go down here. Because that people would, are that would moving be pretty surprising. Droves. It does seem to be, you know, growing mm-hmm. pretty reliably. 
So if you live in a major metro, personally, as somebody who lives in a major metro that has a lot of growth, I am not going to be crossing my fingers hoping for home prices to go down in the future. I could be wrong. Wouldn't it be awesome to be wrong? But the future I see as most likely is two years from now, we're going to have probably higher interest rates on mortgages, but also the house prices are going to be the same, if not slightly higher. Maybe the rate of acceleration will have gone down a bit. Who knows? Yeah. You know, maybe I would love to be wrong. We'll love to be able to buy a cheaper house in a couple of years, but I just don't see it. There's, I just had friends move here the other day. Yeah, you it's know? definitely, definitely growing. I don't see any obvious short-term reason for that to change. Yeah, I don't either. So that that's a thing. Um, people asked about mortgages. Like, what is a mortgage? Well, a mortgage is just a loan from the bank to help you buy a house. It is the loan that most people will have to take on during their lifetimes. Even the people who hate debt. If you want to own a home, you can buy it in cash, but that's really tough. And the thing is, I think in terms of potential gain of my money. So if I want to buy something that would take a very, very long time to save up for, especially something that will probably appreciate in value, it's, it's generally smarter to take cheap money from the bank than to try to save up like $300,000 for a house. Well, yeah, because first of all, that's going to take so much time out of your life that you've now mm-hmm. wasted a bunch of potential happiness in the home you wanted, and you can't get that back. You can't buy that back with your with your gains. But yep. also, the whole time you've been saving up 300K, I assume that took you a couple of years, so you've been paying rent that wasn't yep. going towards your mortgage, and yep. the rent just just disappears. Yeah, Rent just gets thrown into a barrel and, and burned. You never see that money again. If you're putting it towards mm. your loan the whole time instead of renting, at least you keep that money, kind of. Yeah. Now there's like there's an emotional connotation behind the whole like idea that rent is wasted money. Well, I a lot of people in get this, in this particular instance. Yes. I am glad to pay rent personally in my situation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm currently paying rent right now. I am being provided a valuable service by my landlord. I have a roof over my head. I have a place to record these podcast episodes. Yeah, it's great. Um, the term that I read recently, it was on a Reddit post, but I really liked the way that they worded it. It's what are you paying every month in non-equity payments? Interest on your mortgage is a non-equity payment. You know, HOA fee is a non-equity payment, but your rent is also a non-equity payment. So if we're talking about you building equity into a house, which is an asset that will likely appreciate over time, could be an investment, um, your rent and mortgage interest are one in the same in that they are money you pay every month towards your housing expenses that are not building you equity. So in my calculator, I actually have in the housing comparison thing, a non-equity payments line. And for the rent, it's just all of it is listed as non-equity payments. And then for houses, it's um, homeowners insurance, property taxes, your mortgage interest, and then HOA fees. But because the mortgage is going toward uh, oh, and it's mortgage insurance. So what I did is I built in what's called an amortization schedule. Yeah. Uh, and for people who don't know, amortization schedules basically just break down um, how much of your payment goes towards interest and how much of your payment goes towards principal every month. When you start out, 
most of it goes towards interest and very little goes towards principal. And then every month that goes by, a little bit more goes to principal, a little bit less goes to interest. This way you're not like building up a crazy ton of equity right away, which could be disadvantageous to the bank. So I don't know like the pure rationale behind amortization. I just know that uh, for, for mortgages, you're always gonna be paying it. It's never gonna be like a pure simple loan where like a solid fixed amount is always the principal and a solid fixed amount is always the interest. It's always fluctuating. Mm. So, you know, you could take it over time. I think for my non-equity payments calculator, I took like the first two years just to, cause you know, it's like the, the first couple of years in the house. Maybe I should use the first five years and average that. But I just took the first two years of interest and averaged it on a month to month basis for that. You know, it's just like a back of the napkin glance. Like, look, this is how much you're paying for non-equity as your and your rent, and this is how much you'd be paying for the house. And if it's significantly lower, then you know, that, again, that mortgage interest is money well spent. Yeah, like if you're in that situation where you're specifically looking to just, I'm going to save up 300k and buy this house, and I know the the one I want, and mm-hmm. I could have gotten it today with a loan, but no, 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 it could very easily make way more sense. Yes, to do that. So yeah, in in this dimension, people often think of it like one way is debt, one way is not debt. Uh, but really, it's like it's all non-equity payments all the way down until it hits the turtles. Then it's those all the way down. Don't hit the turtles. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about there's like conventional, FHA, VA, state-based. Um, I'm probably doing a conventional one. I think FHA can help for first-time home buyers and people who have lesser credit. Uh, then there's the 30 year versus the 15 year debate. So you can get a 30 year mortgage. You can get a 15 year mortgage. 30 years typically is going to have a slightly higher interest rate than a 15 year though. Talk to a mortgage lender and see what your situation calls for. Uh, but then, you know, in turn, the 15 year is going to have a higher monthly payment. Here's my take on it. If you have uh, let's just say 500 extra dollars per month left over because you're not paying for a 15 year mortgage. That's 500 bucks. You can throw into an index fund and make 7% average. So saving half a percent or quarter of a percent or whatever is probably not worth it to have a higher monthly payment and less money to throw around into savings or investments or whatever every month. The other thing, uh, yes, you're going to pay more in total interest with a 30 year, but if you get a 30 year, you have the option of making extra principal payments if you really want to. Personally, I'm chucking that money into investments. I want every dollar I can to be making money in investments, either stock market or mutual funds or real estate or companies or whatever it is. You know, I want to use that money for those purposes rather than trying to pay down really cheap debt faster. But if you get a 30, you have the option of paying it down like it's a 15. And then the only downside is you're paying a slightly higher interest rate. Yeah. But then like, say you lose your job for a few months. Well, that's like 500 bucks extra. You don't have to pay every month. So, you know, I'd say like optimize for your optionality. And I guess that's all I have to say on that. Uh, and then the other, the other thing is like fixed versus adjustable rate mortgage, what they call arms. I have two arms already. I don't need any more. I'm lying about that. I would take, I would like machamp it all day long. That's fair. But I, I would not accept an adjustable rate mortgage. Tell me what my price is for the life of the loan. The math's already hard price. enough. Do we, do we really need to make it more confusing and it, probably worse for you? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, hey, Tony, 
One second. We good? We are good. I just, uh, we're using a camera that has a 30-minute record limit for Martin, and I don't want it to shut off. People got to see your beautiful face. They, they got to. Yeah, so I wanted to, I wanted to make sure. What else is going to get them through this day? <laughs> Definitely not me talking about numbers all day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, we talked about the monthly payment. Just to recap there, your monthly payment is not the mortgage payment alone. It is going to be quite a bit higher than that. So let's go back to our example. We had a $330,000 house. We put 3.5 down on it because we're ballers. We're going to go back to our 2.75% interest rate that I saw someone on Twitter get still putting 3.5% down because they're a baller. And uh, so we have a uh, payment per period, which I, I keep forgetting to put the percent sign in there on the computer. It doesn't make me do that. So you have payment per period. That's your mortgage payment of $1,300. Uh, and Tony, I already got it. I was... I no, I just I was afraid that you like fell asleep or something. Oh, okay, <laughs> oh, okay cool. Um, PMI. So my calculator is using publicly available PMI figures that I found at a bank's website for somebody with good credit. So this may be different if your credit is below like a 720. I just took the top credit one uh, because my credit is above 720. So that's 153 bucks a month putting 3.5% down. If you put more down, but still under 20%, it will be less. You've got property taxes. The way I like to do this is I look at the property tax history for the property that I'm looking at, and I'll take a few years and calculate the percentage increase or decrease over year over year. And then I'll just add that percentage to the last year's figures. So if it was $1,500 last year and there was a 10% increase for some reason, it's like, cool, I got to add 150 bucks. It's going to be 1650 divided by 12. So in this one, I've got 1434 over the year. So it's 119 bucks per month. And then your homeowner's insurance, talk to your mortgage lender. They're going to give you a good estimate. I've got 160 in here. So your total like mortgage payment, which is all these things, is uh, $1,733.46. And then I've got some assumptions for utilities. Let's just say there's no HOA in here. You can do whatever you want. Have like a bunch of cars on your front lawn, all, all their wheels missing, cinder blocks, no HOA. They don't care. Uh, and then let's say we've got like $225 of total utilities per month. I don't know. what is that high? Is that low? I have no idea. This house is big and I like AC, so. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, that depends on what climate you live in, right? That's true. That is true. Well, here it gets hot in the summer. So um, that gives us a total ownership hard cost of $1,958 per month. And then my estimated monthly recommended savings is 320 bucks. So my full cost here is $2,278.46 on a house that costs $330,000. So if you are spending more than $2,278 per month on your rental, then it's probably worth buying a house at this price at that down payment amount. It sounds like it's very important to do all that math because that first number, that 1300 was like, what? That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But once you add it all up, it's like that plus another 60% it's of that. It's $1,000 more Yeah. per month. Uh, now, you're not going to spend Probably that. You're not going to spend that every month because we're talking about recommended average savings for repairs. You're not going to have repairs every month. Yeah. But you want to be saving diligently for that every month. Um, 
so that's why I also put the hard cost there. Like $1,958 is going to be going out of your pocket to various other pockets that aren't yours every month. But yeah, if you're spending less than 2K, uh, or if if you're spending more than 2K, sorry, on your month, on your rent, then that could be very worth it. Given other factors, of course, you know, is there an increased commute time? We were talking yeah, about, yeah. you know, commute times are actually a contributor to unhappiness that they're very long. Oh, yeah. We talked or, about that in the lost episode. In our lost actually. episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> then we'll do it yeah. again. We'll do it again. Uh, and then we, under this scenario, we have $1,147 a month in non-equity payments. So, you know, when you're thinking about like burning money, that's what you're burning to be a homeowner. And what are you, what are you burning to be a renter? Um, so yes, I think it is very, very, very important to run the numbers like this. So you have an accurate picture of what you're actually going to pay per month. Uh, another thing people don't consider is closing costs on the house purchase. So $330,000, you know, you're putting down your down payment. A lot of people are like, that's all I got to pay, right? That's it. But no. Closing costs is to close the deal. Right, not to, not to finish the loan. Uh, yeah, to close okay. the, to close the cool. deal. So this is money that you're going to spend up front. Um, conventional wisdom will say like two to five percent of the loan amount. When I talked to my mortgage lender, he was like, "It's probably going to be like five thousand bucks." Now, may it may be different for other people, and that may be a low estimate. I'm not sure. I'm keeping more on hand than that. Uh, but you got things like inspection. That could be $500. Appraisals could be three to $500. Closing services fee could be like 300 bucks. Uh, loan origination fees. The research I did said these can be like a half a percent of the loan value. And then often you got to pay property taxes up front for the first year. Uh, there may be HOA fees up front and homeowners insurance up front. So keep a good amount of money on hand. That yeah. is like beyond your down payment that isn't going to be eating into your emergency savings because more money is going to go out of your pocket than just that down payment to get into this house. Um, here in Colorado, one thing I've noticed, because we've offered in a few houses, it's very competitive here, the way that the contracts are written is uh, they have the sellers paying a lot of those closing costs, like title origination fees, title insurance, like a lot of this stuff the, the seller pays, um, at least with the original offer. So if you're bidding on a house that doesn't seem very competitive, then you may be able to offer at asking or lower than asking and have these provisions where the seller pays all this stuff and, you know, it might get accepted. Uh, In our case, we had a counter offer where the seller was like, sure, but uh, you pay some of these fees too. So, you know, you just got to figure out what you might pay. So that's kind of the costs. And did we get through all your questions? Yeah. Cool. Well, then we'll just truck through like the rest of the process up until the point where we're going to stop. So start looking at what's available around town, which means get on Zillow. And if you're anything like me, you probably were doing that already because I like having the app so that when (laughs) I can, uh, when I just drive past a really nice neighborhood, Mm -hmm. I can like park and be like, yeah, I thought that was $3 million. (laughs) (sighs) Got to leave this neighborhood. But it's, it's interesting to be around an area that i like and then just see out of curiosity what are all the values it's really nice to look mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's I, I love doing that i find it interesting i love and honestly one thing that like i get a, a lot of fulfillment out of is just like understanding the layout of my city well 
I don't know. I, I like to ride my bike around the city. I like to ride around neighborhoods. Just like, I want to know like, what is Denver? I want to have like a feeling for it. Yeah. And you know, part of that is I'll just go on Zillow sometimes. Well, like, you can't have neighborhood preferences if you've never been to them. Mm-hmm. Ooh, something that you and Ashley do is, uh, well, you know, before the pandemic is you, you guys would like go have like little mini vacations at a different part of the city. Yeah. We've even like paid for like hotel rooms in places that are relatively nearby, but it's, it's a different experience waking mm-hmm. up in a different neighborhood. And also, it's a much cheaper vacation than doing the same thing in another city where there are travel costs and all that. It's true. And at the end of the day, we could always just like drive home real quick to get something we forgot. Mm-hmm. But it legitimately, we spent two days in a different neighborhood and it felt like a full vacation in a completely different area. Yeah. And it's just like 25 minutes away from where we live now. Yeah. Yeah, so and that could be a great way to start to get to know some neighborhoods. You gotta, you gotta test out how stay. safe do you feel walking around. Yeah, that's an important thing. Go there at night, you know. Something that like I've tried to do is um, if I'm like seriously considering a house, I'll go ride my bike around the neighborhood. Yeah, and be like, all right, is there like a dog constantly barking next door? Like, are there things that I would have a problem with yeah. that I wouldn't see during the weekend morning when I tour it? Or bike lanes. Bike lanes are nice. Uh, you know, if you're moving out to like the suburbs, the street is basically one big bike lane. Well, that that's definitely true as long as the neighborhood's not very busy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if you're moving to a more busy place, yeah, bike lanes could be a big thing. Um, or at least like, is there a back road or something that would be easy to bike on? So yeah, like start start looking on Zillow and start making a list of the things that are important to you, like proximity to work. Um, proximity to a coffee shop, grocery store. How walkable do you want it to be, or bikeable do you want it to be? Ooh, oh, there's a website for walkability. Oh, that, is there? That gives it like a score. Oh, I don't know what website you're talking about. Redfin brings their data in. Cool. Uh, Zillow Good. might as well, but Redfin does. I was looking does. at that not too long ago, but walkability score was real cool, and it was like, yo, yeah, you can get to you get a score of eighty. You can get to most of your things from here. Mm-hmm. That's worth looking into. So if you use, I don't know if Zillow does this, but if you use Redfin, they will show a walkability score and sometimes a bikeability score. I wonder if they just pull that in from the same website I'm thinking about. I'm guessing they probably do because it would be much easier to yeah, just, it'd be much get, easier to an just get an API. Data. And it would be a good way but for that, you, that you know, site to make money. Use Redfin or Google mm-hmm. walkability scores or something. I will sometimes uh, use, there's like some guy made a radius tool so you can enter an address and then you can enter a mile radius and it will overlay a circle onto google maps with the address you put in as the uh, center Hmm. so you can be like all right i'm gonna draw this circle around me so this is one mile as the crow flies where is a grocery store where (laughs) i know you're thinking (laughs) uh where is a coffee shop like that kind of thing i don't know what else I always think of grocery stores and coffee shops. Like, what else do you want to be nearby? Like a bowling alley? Um, trampoline park? I know, an aquarium. Aquarium. Uh, poke restaurant. It's big for me. Ooh, a botanic garden if I could live close to one. Ooh, that, yeah. Those are usually really expensive neighborhoods, so it's iffy. Does but, Denver you know, have cool. any kind of botanic garden besides the main one? There are a couple of other gardenish areas. I don't know if they're explicitly in, in Denver, but you know they're in the metro. In the metro, yeah. Yeah. When I say Denver, I mean the metro, basically. Anna gets on me because I consider Boulder to be part of the metro area of Denver. And she's like, no, it's another city. And I don't know. It, it basically let's ask, is. Let's ask Boulder. Oh, Boulder is going to get real annoyed <laughs> I with think me they, if I call I think they might get mad at you. 
<laughs> I don't know. I can I kind of consider it. Eh, it's like Ames. Yeah, Ames is not really a metro area, Des Moines, but it's like close enough. Anyway, um, list out your requirements. Make a list of things you like, and uh, go on go on Reddit, Google. You know, like first time home buyer regrets Reddit or uh, first time home considerations Reddit, and they'll they'll tell you things that you had not thought of before. One thing I didn't think of: uh, don't buy a house that is positioned west of your job oh because then you're driving into the sun in the morning and then you're yeah, driving so you're just, into the sun when you, you go can't home see anything when you're driving every day that mm-hmm. would that would get a little little annoying now you know right now the housing market is so competitive you may not be able to be super picky or maybe there's just like a neighborhood that you love but it's west of your job here in denver that's a lot of people's problem they want to live near the mountains but they work downtown you're dealing with that but it's it's something to consider uh, one thing that I really hadn't considered much of, but then when I moved into this house, I learned, um, here in Denver, a North facing house is not nearly as good as a South facing house because we're in the Northern hemisphere. So the shadow from my house always keeps the sidewalk oh, in shade. Yeah, that's why and when it yeah. snows. It just ices over. I got to get snow, out there and shovel the it. The snow on your sidewalk specifically lasts about as long as Iowa snow. Specifically ev- my house. Everywhere else yeah. is springtime. Across the street, they it's have completely south absurd. So their, their sidewalks just melt perfectly. They never have to shovel. It's ridiculous. So, yeah, that's something to consider. So, you know, Google those things around. Uh, then, assemble the minions or your team. Actually, I don't think you're your buyer's agent is going to appreciate being called a minion. Probably, Pro- probably <laughs> unless they're like into that. Hello, minion. Have you found me a house yet? Maybe they'll like it. <laughs> I don't know if I'd try that though. No, assemble a team. So that's going to be a buyer's agent, otherwise known as a real estate agent, and a mortgage lender. You can also call a mortgage broker to help find you a lender. They will often charge a fee for this, like a finder's fee. Hmm. Um, in my case, Anna's family had a recommendation I didn't really shop around. I just called him, talked to him. Seems like a great guy. We get along well. He offered me a great rate. You know, I could maybe shop around, but I like the rate. Uh, And then for my agent, a friend of mine recommended his agent. And my agent is freaking awesome. Uh, A lot of people will be like, do you really need an agent? And my answer to that is yes, because buying a house is a very complex process and you want a professional who is experienced at doing this in your corner whose like fiduciary responsibility is to support you. If you like a lot of people will be like, well, the seller has listing agent. I'll just work with them. But the seller's listing agent, their responsibility is to the seller is to get the seller as much money as possible. And I have seen some Slytherin level stuff in this house hunt, like sending a counter offer to keep the buyer on the hook but then sharing the buyer's original offer really quickly with other potential buyers to hopefully get a last minute offer in the tire, but they're keeping that original buyer on the hook with a counter offer. Mm. Like real, st- it's kind of like, I kind of respect it's, it it's as somebody tricky. who plays magic and like does a lot of bluffs and politics and stuff. I kinda, oh yeah. But, but let me tell you the seller's agent works for the seller. And their only goal is to get as much money as possible and the most favorable terms so that's going to be like a, a closing date as soon as possible or whenever they want it. Um, you know, all kinds of stuff. 
that's what their job is. So I think it's worth having someone in your corner who represents you, even though, you know, it may, it may end up being a slightly higher purchase price. So basically the way that, uh, that both brokers get paid is it's like 6% of the sale in general goes to the brokers. So the seller really pays both 3% to the seller agent, 3% to the buyer's agent typically. Um, but you, the buyer pay it because the home price has set with those fees in mind. Yeah. Always remember rent. You're paying everything your landlord's paying because they got to pay it and make a profit still. Um, home purchase price. You're paying those seller's fees. You're paying everything they're paying because it's built with the purchase price. They want to make a profit on their home. Um, so just think about that. But, you know, I would say get a good agent. And if the agent sucks, get a new agent. You know, if they're not answering your calls, if they're not hustling for you, if they're not uh, walking into the house and like trying to point things out that are going to be good or bad, they don't seem experienced, then work with a different agent. You know, a lot of people get their real estate agent licenses and not all of them are, you know, super in your corner. So it's worth working with someone else. Um, you know, in, in my case, my agent uh, is somebody who didn't make me sign any kind of exclusivity thing. He just operates on the value of his work. You know, that's cool. So I'd recommend that. Uh, start touring houses. So I think in the olden days, people would sort of like rely on their agents to bring them houses. You'd like to, you call your agent be like, all right, dude, I want a South facing house with a three car garage and a big old yard. And it comes with a dog. And they're like, well, I can't get you a dog, but everything else. Sure. I'll give you a bunch of listed properties. And they'd look in this thing called an MLS, which is like this secret database of houses that only real estate agents can see. And in the past, uh, houses would go to the MLS first and be there for quite a while before they would hit Zillow and Redfin and truly, I think, and all those other ones. Uh, apparently now it's like an hour before they hit Zillow. So working with my realtor, he's just like, just send me anything you're interested in. You know, I can, I can look for you if you want, give me criteria, but like the stuff is going to pop up on Zillow really quickly. You're probably going to see it before I do. So we just, we'll, we'll see something on Zillow. Uh, we'll do, we'll do instant email searches. So like draw a circle around the area we're interested in, give it criteria, like three bedrooms or more, two parking spaces or more, things like that. And then when things pop up within our price range, it'll email me instantly. Oh, that's cool. And if I like it, I'm like, Hey, can we go see this house? And he's like, yes, we can go see it. Let me ask when I can get a tour in. And then you can go tour. I would recommend bringing a tape measure and taking pictures while you're there. Cause when you're at home later that night, considering it, you're going to want to be like, well, how big was that basement? Like how big was the garage? Can we actually fit things in there? Um, so if you have data, you can make a better decision. And then if you want to offer on a house, tell your agent you want to offer. And um, a good agent is going to help you get a decent determination for what you should offer. So obviously it's like a big old negotiation, right? The seller wants to get as much money as possible. The buyer wants to pay as little money as possible. And right now we're in a seller's market, which means the sellers are at an advantage because there's very little inventory around and there's so many buyers. So a lot of houses have multiple offers and you're never going to know what the other offers are at, as a start. You may be able to ask after offers come in, like, Hey, what was the offer that beat us? Can we counter offer? But sometimes they won't even tell you that. So, uh, you know, my, my agent's been saying like, all right, well, this house has been on Zillow for like 20 days. So clearly people aren't biting, you know, there's like a few things that we, pre we would need to fix. 
I think we'd be safe to offer under asking here, maybe like 5k under asking. They're not going to think that we're like, you know, just totally lowballing them and laugh us away. Um, with some houses, he's been like, this house is spotless. It's in a great neighborhood. I think it's underpriced. It's probably going to get a ton of offers. So that's another service that a buyer's agent will get you is like a little bit of guidance on what you should offer. So you put in an offer, your agent's going to write it up. Um, you can put in all kinds of terms like, you know, I want to close this date, 45 day closing, 60 day closing, whatever it might be. And then you're either going to get an acceptance. You're going to get a, uh, counter offer, which is just like, we want to accept, but we want to change some terms. Do you accept these? Or you're going to get usually crickets. They're not going to be like, no, we decline your offer. They're just not going to tell you. Love to get ghosted. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to tell. I forgot one very important thing before you start looking. Talk to your mortgage lender and get either pre-qualified. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yes. Either get pre-qualified or pre-approved. So pre-qualified, they're going to ask you questions about your income and your debts and your expenses. And they're not going to do a credit poll. They're just going to get that. And they're going to give you like a pre-qualification, which is like a really hand wavy like okay based on what you told us we would give you this much money a pre-approval is they're going to do a hard credit pull uh which can affect your credit score but you know you got to do this thing sometimes they're going to dig really into your income things like that and they're going to be like all right we're, we're kind of like more committing that we would give you this much money for this purchase price uh I think you may be able to skip the pre-qualification phase. If you're very serious, you could just talk to your mortgage lender and be like, look, I want to get a pre-approval for this much. Can we do it? And they may do it. Um, anybody who goes through this, you're going to talk to your mortgage lender. You're going to talk to your agent. You're going to learn a lot more than what I'm talking about here. Well, but. and you'd probably want to pre-approve like with some wiggle room, right? In case they make a counter offer that's a, uh, or if um, you find a house that's 10 grand more than the one you were looking at first, you'll have to get a new pre-approval. Would you have to do it typi- again? Typically they do it really fast. Okay. So, you know, we've offered on like five houses. Have you had to get a pre-approval every, yeah, like, you get separately? a pre-approval. For, well, so as far as I know, you get a pre-approval for the specific property, but I, it's what I was reading is, uh, okay. they're really pre-approving you for a purchase price. So if you had a pre-approval for, you know, 350k and then you that house falls through for whatever reason you go offer on one that's okay 30 but it's ostensibly on a per house basis i think so because you know if you have a pre-approval for like an eight hundred thousand dollar house and you go buy a five hundred thousand dollar house with it like the bank might be like we're not going to give you eight hundred thousand dollars worth of i just wanted to hang out with three (laughs) hundred thousand yeah throw a party the first day yeah, exactly. You know, like Matt Cox went to jail for getting like multiple mortgages on the same property. So the bank is going to want to be like, this is the property that we're loaning you money for. And we're the only people loaning oh, you money yeah. for this property. Um, but in, in my experience, if you have a letter for a property that's more expensive, you could send that and the, the seller is going to take your offer more seriously. Uh, and so this is a big thing. Like, you need a, pre, a pre-qualification or more likely a pre-approval for the seller to take your offer seriously. Because a lot of people will come in, they'll offer a bunch of money, and then their financing falls through. So typically sellers will not accept an offer unless you have one of those two, because otherwise it's, it might fall through and they might let a more legitimate buyer slip through the cracks. So yeah, get yourself a pre-qualification or pre-approval, whichever one seems more advantageous for the moment. And uh, let's see here. I think we had talked about making the offer, acceptance counteroffer, or crickets. And uh, then if you're accepted, cool. Now you're under contract. 
and you're going to go through inspection and appraisal and closing procedures, which I have not yet done. So we'll talk about those in a, pre in a next, not previous, in a future episode. Bada boom. We should, we should definitely do them backwards and then say we'll talk so? about those in a previous episode. <laughs> yeah, it'll be fine. Just to mess with people. Uh, okay. Tony, if you want to hit it, um, we're going to be done in the next probably 20 minutes. So if you want to okay. just like refresh it. That darn, I, well, I figure, I forgot. I think they had like taken the tariffs off of uh, European imports of video cameras. So now I don't even know what the recording limit is. I don't know. Sony removed it, right? You don't have it on yours, right? I don't recall. I don't film things very long. Mm. I'm pretty sure the new Sony A7S III doesn't have it. I've, I'm very tempted to buy it and get like a Sony to Canon lens adapter just to get rid of that stupid limit. I always hated it. Uh, okay, so we had a few questions from Twitter and Instagram. Uh, one person said, why not rent forever? Which actually, I'm, I'm curious about your take from, on that because you're continuing to rent. Well, I'm continuing to rent because I don't know where I want to be in five years in the slightest. And the idea of committing to one location for five years doesn't sound right to me. And mm. I suppose if it never sounded right to me and I just kind of, you know, bounced back and forth between cities, maybe it would never make sense to buy. And then I mm. could rent forever. But there is a, there is a cost and that yeah. I will never be building home equity. Yeah. So <clears throat> the reason would be if you rent forever, you can't build home equity. That, that's, that's exactly that's, what it is. That's it. If you're cool with that, then rent forever. Move everywhere. It just mm -hmm. comes at a cost. Or if, if you think about it a little more tangibly, do you always want to be paying for where you live? You know, th that feels like a, like a you know, nothing question to people our age. Cause it's like, that's the only option. You got to pay for where you live unless yeah. you go live it feels in mom's like basement a, like a given. and watch a bunch of anime all day. But, uh, you know, if I'm like 50 and you know, that there's a different, different, like viscerality to that question. I don't know if that's a real word, but it's, it's more real. Yeah. I could have a house paid off or I could still be renting and say, I want to stop working so hard. What if I want to go spend a lot of my time volunteering and building houses for people or yeah. you want to intentionally cut your project. direct income doing yeah. something else? Well, if I'm renting, I really can't. It's the same thing as with debt payments, you know, like debt payments reduce your optionality in the now. Um, and I use debt to my advantage in certain times, but like I don't always want to have debt payments because they reduce my optionality. Well, rent reduces your optionality to a degree. Uh, and as we've illustrated here, Again, number one, when you're paying rent, you're paying all the expenses of your landlord. Now, a lot of landlords buy houses in cash, so their expenses are lower than somebody paying a mortgage, which that, that is like, it took me a while to figure that out because I was here in Denver and I'm like, man, a lot of places like what I'd pay for a mortgage and homeowners insurance and all that is more than what the rent is on similar houses in the neighborhood. How are they doing this? And I realized, oh wait, it's people with like, millions of dollars coming in buying these houses in cash so that way their only payment every month is the non-equity stuff yeah they're just paying homeowners insurance and uh property taxes and and utilities and maintenance so you know they can afford to rent it for far lower because there is no mortgage payment but um you know we a lot of us can't do that 
So that's just the biggest thing. I don't, I don't want to be always paying money for where I live. It would be, that's I mean, fair. you're always going to pay some, you're always going to pay property and taxes. Like, for the record, I probably don't always want to either. At some yeah. point I might buy something just right now. You're going to find a place where you want to be. Eventually, I don't know. I think, you know, like, I, Maybe I believe someday eventually it'll click you will. And it'll just make a lot of sense. But if it yeah. doesn't at the moment, I don't want to buy and then be like horrified at the annoyance that I've brought myself and, and of either commitment or having to sell the house. Yeah, which that is, obnoxious. is the other side of this because a lot of people will feel like, oh, I got to buy a house now. It's, it's an investment and I'm, I'm throwing away money every month. Um, if you don't know where you want to be, rent is a very valuable service because rent increases your optionality in terms of what you can do if you decide you want to move or whatever you're not tied I'm, down i'm as paying much. to stall exactly you're paying to stall a little bit if you, you i want to move to seattle i want to move to minneapolis i want to move wherever i want to go cool wait till your lease is up that's it wash your hands of the place or if your apartment has a buyout clause or whatever it is pay that you know maybe it's kind of pricey but that's it but when you got a house you either got to sell it or you got to try to rent it out. And that's a whole can of worms. My friend Matt had, uh, maybe still has a condo in Jersey and he moved out to Boulder. So he wanted to leave Jersey, couldn't sell the place. So he rented it out and the property management companies he hired one after another were not doing their job, not finding good tenants, all this kind of stuff. You know, it's tons of headache. Yeah. So, you know, maybe rent payments reduce your optionality over the very, very long term because you're always paying for where you live. But in the short term, they give you options because you're not really committed to where you are. And that's worth it. Yeah. Renting is just playing the field, but for houses. Mm hmm. You don't know what you want to do yet. You know, and the conventional wisdom is like the house you live in is an investment and it'll probably in increase in value. But. I think it's worth it to consider that in a loose sense, but not like the house you live in is not like an investment investment. It's a place you live. If you're not buying it with the intention to rent it out or flip it, then it's not like a real investment. It's something you hope it's appreciates a, it's an in investment value. in the same way that my magic cards are an investment. I don't plan to sell them. So it really doesn't matter if they become valuable because I'm, I want them still. Yes. Buy it because you want it, because you want to live it's, in it. It's an accidental investment. Unless you're intending to flip, rent, or house hack, or whatever. Uh, I had one person like ask, how open to you are, to you are, how open are you to the idea of house hacking? Which I believe is basically just buying a house and then like renting out a room to somebody else. Or I think, and I have not researched this very much, but apparently some people will like use a low down payment FHA loan to buy a duplex and then rent out half of it. Um, I don't want to do that right now. You know, I just want to buy my own house, but eh, it's something to look into. It's something we could do an episode on maybe. Certainly a strategy. Maybe, maybe get a house hacker on the show or something like that. Uh, is it? Yeah. Okay. So is a house a good investment. We talked about that. It might not be. You never know. So don't, don't buy it because you like, just because you think it's an investment, buy it cause you want it. And also because it will likely appreciate in value over the long term. Uh, let's see here. I had like saving. We talked about savings for the long term versus saving for, Oh, saving for the long term versus savings for down payment. So somebody asked like, should you be investing money or saving for a down payment? And my view on this is if you're intending to, take a bunch of money out for a down payment. Don't put that 
like if you're going to do that in the first like two years, three years from now, don't put that in the stock market. Don't even put it in an index index fund. Cause like the gains you're going to make on two years of growth is not that much. And it could be losses. Yeah. Know? The reward isn't sufficient for the risk. If you actually want to spend it shortly, mm-hmm. like right now things are fine. Weirdly. I don't understand why the stock market is so good right now, but you know, say it's just an imaginary confidence game, man. Say, but say you're in 2006 and you're like, I'm going to save for a house. I'm going to put money in a mutual fund and I'm going to buy a house in 2009. Well, there goes half your money when the stock market crashes. So, you know, I really don't think two, two years of gains are worth the risk that you could lose money on it. Yeah. You know, and it could be a small loss, but it could still be a loss. So, Keep it in cash, in like a yeah, savings you really, account. You really shouldn't or, be investing money that you intend to use short term. Just yeah. in, investments well, are for slightly longer term. Or put it in like a two or three year treasury bond or something. You know, if you want to make it, if you want to make some money on it, put it on something that's like it's a guaranteed payment. That, you know, that's fair. Two percent, three percent bond it protects against inflation, but it's not like you might lose three percent on it or something. Uh, yeah. So we, we asked about like current, I think we had talked about uh, current investment rates and prices. Um, so here we go. When, when do you stop accelerating loan payments and start saving for a down payment? So there's a really good like question. Alternate loans, like student um, loans? Well, I'm, ge- I'm just going to put any kind of loans in here. Well, that's what I just, not the home loan. No, Previ- yeah, not Previous the home debt that you're already holding. When previous do you debt. stop trying to pay those off super fast and instead save up for a home? Yeah. So I will apply this same rule to this. Actually, I got to think about this. So my typical rule for debt payments is anything over 5% accelerate the payoff. 5% interest. Yep. So my rationale on this is if you look at like index funds in the stock market in general as, a, as an entire market, over a very, very long period of time, like 75 years, 100 years, our average rate of return is 7%, around about. So to be a little bit conservative, let's let's just knock that down to 5%. So long-term investment returns in index funds are probably going to give you, we, we could be pretty confident say you're going to make 5% on those. So any debt over 5%, I say kill it, which means... Any loans you have, make your minimum payments, and then any money left over that you would be saving and or putting towards debt payments, put it towards the debt payments. Once you have your emergency fund and like a nice savings buffer, of course. You know, war chest. Always have your war chest. Uh, beyond that, though, you know, I, I think it's like it's worth it's worth starting to invest because you're going to make those gains. Now, with a down payment, we just said you're not putting it in the stock market because you're not trying to worry about gains over two years of investing. Yeah. Um, you know, you got to make the decision for yourself at that point. Do your debt payments represent, uh, do they represent like a lot of uncomfortability for you? Um, and maybe there's some math we could build about this. I haven't really done the math on it yet. Like early payoff of a 5% loan versus, um, you know, getting into a house. There's probably a lot of variables around this. I would like to build things like this into my spreadsheet so you can ask more complex questions. But, you know, at the very least, kill your 5% and over debt first, I think. Unless, unless you can make a very good case to yourself that you would 
maintain or increase your standard of living by getting into a house that is going to significantly decrease the amount of money you're paying per month versus your rental. Uh, I don't know what market you would do that in here in Denver. Like what I'm paying for this house, I'm going to save a lot of money buying a house. What you're paying for your townhouse, it's, it's much harder to say. I've looked around yeah, trying to like build a payment that would be very close to what you're paying for your townhouse. And it's like, it's a little harder. Yeah. So, uh, it, that may not be the case, but if you're in a market where you're like, I would actually save a lot of money by buying a home. Well, then that's money you could put towards your debt. It just, it all depends. So, um, maybe we could answer that more thoroughly in a future episode, or I could build it into my calculator. I'm always improving my calculator. I'm trying to make it like really, really useful. So, you can check that out. And I think that was all the questions we had. So um, thank you to everybody on Instagram and Twitter who asked me questions. And uh, I'm Tom Frankly on Instagram and Twitter if you want to follow me and ask more questions for the show. Because we're doing cult member questions. Almost forgot. Yeah, we're doing cult member like questions every time we do uh, an episode now. Because I think it's fun. And I'm like, why wait for, for five questions episodes when we can just do them all the time? Yeah. But yeah, these were all questions submitted by cult members. And uh, yeah, I thought it was fun to just go through it. So is there anything you have like lingering questions before we wrap this one up? I got nothing. Cool. Why buy a house? Why not steal a house? Ooh, there you go. Well, if you steal a house, they're probably going to know where to find you. Not if it's a mobile home. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Steal an RV. Got them. That's the most dastardly way to do it. <laughs> All righty. Uh, well, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Inforium. Do we have URLs for show notes yet? Yeah, theinforium.com slash two. That's it? Cool. Theinforium.com slash two. Uh, this is one of those episodes that's going to have quite a few show notes, links, research, things like that. So uh, check it out and let me know what you think. Again, I gave you those social media handles, Tom Frankly and everything. If you have follow-up questions, we're going to do a follow-up episode to this for sure because, you know, once I actually close on my house, I'm going to know what the closing process is like, and I think that will be quite illuminating. I will know what my closing fees actually are. So that'll be fun. Uh, Yeah, so if you have not subscribed to this show yet, you can go over to theinforium.com. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, and uh, many other podcast players out there. Just search for The Inforium in your podcast player of choice. Hit that subscribe button, and you're going to get new episodes on the Mondays when they come out. I think it's about every two weeks right now. Yeah, essentially. That's what we've been on for a while. So, yeah, let's just say every every other Monday at, uh, I think it's like about 8 a.m., or something like that, central time, you know, talking in TV language. Yeah, something. Be sure to turn in at 8, 7 central. Be sure to tune in when your phone tells you that you got a new one. Or, yeah, I guess have notifications. I don't have notifications. I don't tell people to do notifications because I don't do notifications. And don't do anything I would do. Well, I don't know. Or would do. Or don't do anything I would do. Don't do anything. Don't do anything I wouldn't or would do. Um, once again, if you want to get my budget tool where you can actually like run house pricing comparisons, uh, thomasjfrank.com slash budget tool, or we will have it in the show notes over at theinforium.com slash two. Uh, if you want to support this show, support it 
Then uh, Apple Podcasts, among all the podcast players, has a rating and review system. So if you are an Apple user and you want to support this show, uh, leaving us a five-star rating and review is always highly appreciated. Otherwise, just sharing this show with a friend or just continuing to listen as you already are is very appreciated as well. So thank you, as always, for hanging out. We will see you in the next episode. Stay cute.